who wrote notes to global mission partners, they are bringing those notes on our behalf. So that's totally exciting. But let's keep uh, Jenna and Elena in our prayers uh, over the next couple of weeks as well. Um, in just a minute, we're going to receive our offering today, and uh, we're also going to bless and dismiss the kids and release them um, to Kid Zone. And I just want to say a few remarks about offering. Um, we we really ended the the 2019 fiscal year pretty strongly, and I just want to say thank you to Victory Point. I mean, obviously we didn't meet our complete budget, which we rarely do, uh, but we finished the year strong and generously. And as the pastor, I get to hear of some stories of some people anonymously blessing other people in the family. And, um, you know, I, I'm even recipients of some of that sometimes. And um, I'm just, just humbled and, and proud of the way this church practices generosity. Um, the, the way this church seeks to take care of each other and, and, and to, to combine resources together and um, be on mission together in this community and in this world. So I just want to say thanks to all of you um, for your, as always, generosity at the end of the season, and especially with the holiday offering. Um, so far to date, I'm sure some more came in that we haven't counted yet, but we collected $31,600 for our holiday offering this year, which way to go, Victor. Victory point. Way to go, God. Way to go, God, and, and, and way to go, Victory Point, in your partnership with him and the stewardship of your resources. That money is going to um, help, help us continue to support our global mission partners scattered around the world. That money is going to be used to, to really resource our local missional communities as they seek to represent and embody the kingdom of God in all different ways throughout this community. Some of that money is going to go to Lakeshore LifeWorks and just come alongside of an organization that seeks to walk with children who age out of the foster system. So it's just fun. It's just fun when we can do things like that and bless all kinds of people and ministries and organizations. So way to go, Victory Point. I just wanted to celebrate that. So I'm going to ask, uh, I want to pray for the offering this morning, but I also want to um, pray for the kids. So I'm going to ask uh, kids who are grades first through fifth grade, uh, if you are going to Kid Zone this morning, can you guys stand? And uh, their, their rhythms are resuming as well this morning, and uh, we want to resume our practice of blessing them uh, before they leave the room. So if you have, uh, the, just look for the nearest kid around you and maybe raise a hand of blessing towards them, and uh, will you join me in praying for them? Lord, first of all, as we pray for the kids, I also just want to um, formally in prayer uh, say thank you for your generosity and your goodness to us as a church family, in, in the way that uh, your generosity, generosity was felt uh, in December, and, and especially with our holiday offering, Lord. Thank you for the privilege it is to take the, the resources you give us and to redirect them um, to, in the blessing of others. And Lord, as we think about resources, one of the, probably the best resource we have as a church is these kids. Thank you for the gift of these kids. Thank you for the gift that they are to their families and to us as a church family. And we pray, Lord, now that as, as they are released and they go spend some time together with adults who love them, that uh, your generosity through your love and your grace and your goodness and your kindness um, and, and your mission for them uh, would be experienced in fresh, tangible ways in Kid Zone today. Thank you for all the volunteers who serve in that ministry. Lord, we pray your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, kids, you can be released. We're going to receive an offering right now. And as we receive an offering, I have a question for you to think about and to maybe share with someone next to you. As you think about the Gospels, as you think about the stories of Jesus, what was Jesus' favorite topic to talk about? What was his favorite topic? Think about that and then turn to someone next to you and say, I think it was this or I think it was that, okay? Do that while the offering's being received. All right, what was it? What, was Jesus, what do you think was Jesus' favorite topic or his, his most favorite message to, to preach? Love. Love. What else did I hear? Kingdom of God. It doesn't help that that slide is up right now. It kind of gives it away, doesn't it? I think love. I think love has definitely permeated everything. It was his favorite topic. But... I think there's a case to be made that Jesus' favorite topic or, or the, the idea that he was most passionate about was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it's mentioned, I, I saw someone who counted them up, like it's mentioned over a hundred times in some way, shape, or form throughout the Gospels, which I think is telling and challenging and interesting because you know what? The word church or ecclesia is only mentioned twice. In the Gospels, the kingdom is mentioned over a hundred times. It gives us a hint or a clue of, of what's most important and, and what we should be, you know, centering our energies on. Um, you'll notice, you know, when we talk about the kingdom of God, you'll notice in the in the Gospel of Matthew, in particular, he often refers to it instead of the kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven, and that's intentional on Matthew's part. When you think about it, Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, and out of reverence and respect to the very name of God, uh, he instead used the phrase the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. Because to a, a serious Jew, the, the name of God was so holy um, that, that to even utter it, you know, you do so with respect and reverence. Like you could even read stories about how when the scribes, you know, would even write the name of God, then they would burn that quill and grab a new quill because his name is so holy. But I just say all that to, to help us understand um, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. When you, when you see those phrases in the Gospels, we're talking about the same thing. Now, the elders and I uh, have been reading the book of Acts to begin the, the 
kind of the year together. Um, We're going to be going away this coming weekend on a leadership retreat. And so we decided we're going to read the book of Acts together, you know, uh, in preparation for that. So I've been reading in the book of Acts. And right away in Acts chapter 1, I was struck by something. If you guys, if the slides are working, if we could go to Acts chapter 1. So so Acts was written by Luke. Um, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And then he also wrote the, the book of Acts. And it's kind of like a letter, you know, it's a book, but it's sort of like a letter to a certain person. And uh, check this out, like right at the very beginning, this is what Luke says. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them, and this is the part I want to zoom in on. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I mean, when you know that your time on earth is short, when you know you only have so many days left on earth, you talk about what's most important, I'm guessing. Note that it doesn't say that Jesus talked to the apostles about, you know, how to organize a church or a denomination. Didn't talk to the apostles, you know, even about, I mean, about making converts. I mean, all those things are important and maybe are kind of subcategories, but, but the main thing that Jesus chose to spend his last 40 days on earth talking about with his apostles, with the disciples, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. It's at the center of our vision statement as a church. You know, this is our vision statement as a church. You've heard this before, and hopefully you could even recite this, but you want to throw that up there. Our vision as a church is this, to bring, or sometimes we say to embody the kingdom of God in our families, our community, in our world. It's a great statement. What does it mean? Right? Like, what do we mean by that? How do we know if we are embodying or bringing the kingdom of God to our families, community, and to the world? Excuse me, I've been thinking a lot about this word kingdom, and I self-reflect, I use that word a lot, and sometimes I wonder, do I use it too casually or flippantly? You know, I I even have, like I was thinking about this this week, I even have, you know, how on Google you could set up like this email signature that gets, you know, put at the bottom of every email you send. Like I have one that says, you know, wishing you grand adventures in the kingdom of God. Like what do I mean by that? What, What do we mean when we use that phrase, the kingdom of God? What did Jesus mean when he used that phrase, the kingdom of God? So we're gonna use some of our Sundays in January to, to, to try to answer that question. What is the kingdom of God? Now realize, Jesus spent three years that we have recorded in the Gospels. Jesus spent three years talking about the kingdom of God. Then another 40 days speaking about, teaching about, incarnating, demonstrating, releasing the kingdom of God. So I don't expect that we can in just a few Sundays capture all there is to know about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it's full of textures and nuances and implications, but there's no mistaking. The kingdom of God was the central thing. It was the central thing on Jesus's heart, on his mind, coming out of his mouth. 
And it, so to me, it just seemed like a good thing for us to reflect on as we together begin not just a new year, but a new decade together as a church. Because here's the deal. And here's the deal for, for the, the impetus for this whole series. If the kingdom of God was such a central priority to Jesus, and if we being his disciples want to be like him and do the kinds of things he did, then we have to ask the question, is the kingdom of God a central priority to me? Is the kingdom of God a central priority to us? Is it? That's what we're going to talk about. Let's pray. Father, as, as, as we continue just our gathering this morning, um, and as we open up your word in particular, and in, in seek to understand the kingdom of God, I pray that you would bring fresh revelation. I pray that you would take the word of God and the truth of God and, and plant it in good soil of our heart, and it would take root, and we would not just learn more, but we would experience more what it means to be a kingdom people following a king. May that be so. In the name of Jesus, our king, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, since the kingdom of God was Jesus's favorite topic, there's no lack of verses that we could spend time on um, over these next few weeks. But to begin this series, I want to look at just a few of them to get a sense of how Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. So first slide, I put three verses up there. Mark 1.15, this should be a familiar verse to Victory Point. We, we, we refer to this verse a lot. Um, we refer to this verse a lot in our discipleship language. You know, it, it's that moment when Jesus begins his public ministry. He, he's been baptized. The father has affirmed his identity. You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You know, he's been, he's been tested by the enemy in the wilderness. And now this is how Jesus launches or begins his public ministry with this declaration. The time has come. Time is kairos there. There's this, this moment in time, this breakthrough into human existence. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the kingdom is something that is inaugurated. The kingdom is something that breaks in to our lives. Well, then Luke says this, Luke 17, 20 to 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst or in other translations, it's within you. So another thing we can understand about the kingdom of God is it's not limited to just a geographical location. See, it's something that can be received internally. And then Matthew, you know, Matthew 6, 33. We've, we've probably heard this verse before. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So obviously the kingdom is something that you can pursue. It's something that you could go after. It's something that you could, you know, intentionally seek. Well, then you could also go to Matthew, I guess. In, in, in the book of Matthew especially, there's, there's all these passages, um, or all these parables, if you will, where Jesus is trying to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like. Let's go to that. The kingdom of heaven, this is a popular phrase for Jesus. He says this a lot. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's like this. 
It's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Oh, it's also like a mustard seed. Oh, and it's like yeast. Or it's sort of like a treasure that was hidden in a field. Or it's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Oh, the kingdom of God, it, that's like a net that's, that's dipped down into the water and you catch a bunch of fish. Or, or the kingdom of God is like a king who, who threw a banquet and invited all kinds of people. Or it's like a king who wanted to settle accounts. I mean, there's all, we're not lacking parables of Jesus trying to describe the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. But I think for this morning where I want to camp out on, I think one of the greatest clues that Jesus gives us to the kingdom of God and what it is and what it means is um, a phrase that he taught his disciples to pray. Remember that? Um, You can read about it in Mark where the disciples, like after watching Jesus pray, they're like, hey, teach us to pray like you pray. Because something's not, when we pray, we don't like experience what you experience. Teach us to pray like you pray understanding that, that prayer is something you can learn. Prayer is something you can grow in. You could be taught. You can, you can grow that muscle. So he taught them a prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Or maybe it's more appropriately the Disciples' Prayer. In, in, um, you can read about it in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to look at a couple of verses. If you want to go to Matthew 6, I mean, you guys know this prayer. You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. There's this linkage between the kingdom of God and God's will. Kingdom and God's will. You cannot separate those two things, which makes sense when you think about the concept of a kingdom. I mean, just think about the concept of a kingdom that maybe you read about in storybooks or in fairy tales, or, or in real life. I mean, kingdom isn't something we naturally identify with in, in our culture. But think about a kingdom. For there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. A kingdom has a king. And a king has a will for his or her kingdom. The king has a will for the kingdom and for the people of the kingdom. And the king, you know, in a kingdom usually has, the king usually has a rule and a law, and a kingdom usually involves a land. But I think from the Lord's Prayer, we can deduce that the kingdom of God is wherever the fulfillment of God's will on earth is happening. The kingdom of God is wherever the fulfillment of God's will on earth is happening. The kingdom of God is the realm over which God reigns as king, where the king is ruling and reigning. Or to put it another way, the kingdom of God is wherever God is in control. The kingdom of God is wherever God is in control. That's why the kingdom of God can be within you. That's why the kingdom of God can be within you. When we surrender to him, when we receive and come under his lordship and his domain and his control, when his intentions and his values and his will is happening in a particular spot or moment or relationship or situation or occasion, there is the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of God. All of creation is God's. Make no mistake about it. Everything is God's. The kingdom is that which is willingly submitted and subjected to his will, to his control. Now, we don't like that word control, do we? It's not one of our favorite things. We don't like this idea of anyone else controlling 
my life. Let's just acknowledge that. We don't like that idea of control. We don't like that word. Again, especially those of us, like, we all live in the United States of America, a democratic society. We elect people to rule and to, to rule on our behalf, to do what we want them to do. We, we, we don't understand what it is like to live you know, in, in a kingdom, you know, with a king or that type of ruler. We very much value independence. So when this idea, when we, when we ponder this idea of, of anyone else controlling me, like we sort of bristle at that. You know, it, it kind of makes the hair stand up on us. You know, um, but let's remind ourselves, control isn't always a bad thing. And Jesus said, if you want to have life, you're going to have to lose your life. You're going to have to die to yourself, give up rule and reign in order to have the life that he has for us. Control is not always a bad thing. I grew up as a kid in the 70s. I mean, I was born in 1970. And um, one of my favorite shows to watch as a kid in the 70s was Star Trek. Any like original Star Trek fans here? Good, I'm not alone. Okay, and I remember one of my favorite toys as a kid is um, my parents bought me like this, this set, it's like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It was like this, un, you can unfold it, and um, you had, I had action figures, they were about like, I guess they were dolls, I had dolls, they were like that tall, and I had Captain Kirk, and Spock, and Scotty, and maybe Lieutenant Lahura, I think was also part of that, but the, there was a, on this set, there, there was this plastic chair in the middle of the bridge, and it was the captain's chair. And you know who sits in the captain's chair of the Starship Enterprise? Captain James Tiberius Kirk. That's his chair. He's the captain. That's his chair. The captain sits in the chair. And there were moments in the series, or if you fast forward to today, maybe you're fans of the new... I mean, there's been different versions of Star Trek Generations, um, but maybe you're familiar with the new movies that are being made. I know Tori's a big fan, and she can't wait for the next one to come out. She like, I think she likes... What's that pine guy name? The pine guy. Yeah, you think he's hot. I know. Um, but that if you watch maybe the Star Trek movies... You know, there's always these moments, right, when the captain has to go somewhere and he says something to somebody else, somebody else on the bridge. You know, like he leaves and all of a sudden Sulu has the con, you know, or, or Chekhov has the con. Like there's, there's that phrase that gets used, you know, has the con. It's a very important principle, you know, when, when, when you're driving a ship or a boat, or a submarine, or things like that. It's one of the most important principles of ship handling is there can be no, there can be no question of who's in control. There needs to be a really clear understanding of who's in control of the movements of the ship, of who's the one giving the orders on you know, what speed to go and what direction to go and, and things like that. This person is said to have the con. It's a naval term, right? Like if you watch submarine movies, you know, sometimes a submarine, you know, comes up to the surface and there's that big thing that sticks up. That's the con and they can actually drive from up there too. Like there needs to be crystal clearness of who has the con at every moment in, in the life of a submarine or of a ship or of the Starship Enterprise, okay? Or, or maybe like of a plane. Think of a plane. Maybe you've watched some movies. Like, like think of the, the movie Sully, Remember the, with, with Tom Hanks and it's the true life story of when they land on the Hudson, it was like 10 some years ago, I think. 
Or there was that one with Denzel Washington flight where they fly the plane upside down. But there's always this moment in a crisis where the pilot says, you know, um, I have the plane. Right? I think that's an aviator thing. I, it's the equivalent in, in airplanes of the naval thing. I have the plane. I'm in control. And I'm grateful for that. You know, like whenever I fly, like, you know, whenever I go somewhere on an airplane, I'm grateful that I'm not in control. I'm grateful that I don't have the plane, that I'm not, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to fly a plane. I should not be in the pilot seat of a plane. I should not be the captain of the Starship Enterprise, although I think I could do that. But don't you think the same is true of our lives? I mean, don't you think, when you think, they take it out of the realm of, you know, ships and submarines and airplanes and, and spaceships. Think about your life. Who's at the wheel? Who's, who's in the captain's seat? Who's in the pilot seat? When we submit ourselves to God's control, or the word we would use in the church is his lordship. He's Lord. When we submit ourselves to God's control, to his lordship, I mean, it's not like now we do nothing and he does everything. It's a partnership. But God wants control. He wants to be Lord. He wants to be king. Though he empowers us to make decisions. True lordship is when we can say, when when God can say to us, I have control. I have the con. And we are willing to relinquish control. The culture of the kingdom of God has everything to do with his lordship and his will being done. The kingdom of God is wherever God is in control, where his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, through a person, through a church, through a missional community, through a group, through a sphere of society. This has always been his intention. The kingdom of God, like think about this, it's not a New Testament idea. It's not like this new idea that Jesus, you know, ushered in in Mark 1, 15 when he says the kingdom of God is here. He brought it in a, in a very now tangible, incarnated way, but it's always been his M.O. Um, so like if you're, if you're following the, the Victory Point Bible reading plan, um, it's just something we started as a church back in uh, the fall when we were looking at Acts 2.42 and we noticed that the early church, they were devoted to four things, to, to the word of God, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread. What does it mean for us to be devoted to those four things? And, and so this past fall, we launched an all-church Bible reading plan together. And uh, that brought us through the end of the year. And now there's a, the next version is out. If you want to take advantage of it, it's at the um, welcome table. You can grab one of these. You can access it online through our Facebook page, through our website. Um, but there, there's readings every day that we're all hopefully reading together and centering around. And then there's also additional readings. And on Wednesday, one of the additional readings was Matthew. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, and that's the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. It, it, it's where it's talk, it's this picture of the, when, when Jesus returns and he gathers all the nations and all the people. And, and just like a shepherd, he begins to separate the sheep from the goats. And you know, the sheep go on one side and the goats go on the other side. And then he says this in verse 34. Is that up there? Do, do we, can we get to that one? So it starts out with the son of man returning, but then the language switches to this. Then the king, the son of man is the king. Jesus is the king. Then the king will say to those on his right, come 
You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. What's your inheritance? The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The kingdom is not a new idea. The kingdom has always been God's idea. It's always been in play. It's always been in existence. In the creation, so, so that means we should see it in the creation story. And we do. When you go to the creation story, when you go to the, the book of Genesis, and, and a lot of us know this story, um, you see glimpses of the kingdom of God already in play there. You see God's intention for human partnership in the Garden of Eden, which, you know, was never intended to be a retirement village, right? Like, like it, it's a place, it's a beautiful place where, where God gives us purpose and, and he gives us things to do. God actually gives Adam and Eve dominion and lordship. He shares his dominion. He shares his lordship with Adam and Eve. And he invites them and empowers them to rule and to reign over creation, to touch, control, to access, to, to eat. But there's just, there's just one tree. Just one tree that he reserves control of as king and as lord and as God. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from that tree, okay? Don't eat from that tree. Now, what was it about that particular tree? Can it just simply be it was bad fruit? You know, what was it about that tree? I mean, the knowledge of good and evil. When we think of the word knowledge, we think of information. Knowledge is knowing something. Knowledge is having information, and it is. So what, what does that mean? Does that mean like God just wanted them to be naive about something? There's really, when you, when you dive into it, there's something deeper going on. In the Hebrew, the, 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 that word knowledge comes from the, the word yada, which is way bigger than simply just having information, intellectual information about something. And it has way more to do with having the right to decide and to determine something. So I, I think in that light, what God is maybe saying to Adam and Eve is, look, all this that I made, it's yours. I give it to you. I give it to you to control, to develop, to do good things with, to, to multiply in. I share everything that I've made with you. I share everything that I am with you. There's just one thing. There's just one thing that I reserve the right to control, God says. The right to decide right and wrong. Now the serpent, we know the story. The serpent deceives Eve and then Adam. You know, you read about that in Genesis 3. You know, did, did God really say that? Did he really say, did, did he really say no, you won't die. If you eat of that, you're going to be like God. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And the word God there is Elohim, which means you're going to be like ruler and judge. You will be like God in that way. So when you think about it through that lens, through a kingdom lens, the, the, the fall of mankind, the loss of the kingdom, was never simply about an obedience test for Adam and Eve. I mean, there was that, but it was God declaring that he alone is king. That he and he alone is God and Lord. He is the one that is the decider of right and wrong for the world. So when Eve and, and Adam, after her, chose to eat of that one tree, essentially what they're, they're choosing to do is they're choosing to replace God's lordship in their lives. And they're essentially saying that they now 
will be the decider and the judge of what is right and what is wrong. You know, they'll, we will decide what's right and wrong. We'll decide if having sex before marriage is right or wrong. We'll decide if fooling around while married is right or wrong. We'll decide if looking at pornography is right or wrong. We'll decide if withholding on my taxes is right or wrong. You know, just fill in the blank. That, that's what happened in that moment when Adam and Eve ate of that tree. Suddenly, they're putting themselves in the position that only God rightly deserves. To decide things of right and wrong in our lives. It was this... It was the source of the fall then and of humanity now. It's still the source that gets us into trouble, that creates problems. Mankind has replaced God as Lord and put ourselves into that spot. And that never works. Does it? Has it ever worked being Lord of your life and ignoring God? But it's that posture of no one has the right to tell me right or wrong, what I should or shouldn't do. The moment mankind puts God or puts him or herself in control of what is right and wrong, of what should or shouldn't be done, in essence, the kingdom of God is lost because his will is lost. And now, instead of his will being done, it's our will being done. So how is the kingdom regained then out of that? How do we embody or bring the kingdom today in light of that? Well, it's not something we can do on our own because that act created sin and sin needs to be dealt with and sin needs to be forgiven. It's why we need Jesus. But I also do think it might be as simple as if, if that's how the kingdom was lost with Adam and Eve choosing to make themselves Lord of their lives, then perhaps regaining, restoring, bringing, embodying the kingdom is as simple as reversing that posture, that choice in our lives and simply saying to God, I hand authority back to you. I hand the right to the tree of knowledge of good and evil back to you. I acknowledge you as Lord and I choose to live under your will and your authority. It's praying daily what Jesus taught his disciples then and today to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life today as it is in heaven. And meaning it and living it. That's how you begin, I think, to embody the kingdom of God in your family and in your community and in the world. I want to invite the band up. We're going to have an extended time of, of maybe reflection this morning. Um, I also want to share like a, a slide with you. Like, so 1990, I am a uh, sophomore um, at Hope College, ending my sophomore year, beginning my junior year. And um, a guy by the name of Grant Scott befriends me. I didn't like my first year at Hope. I was ready to transfer. And he befriended me. And he was trying to start a movement on Hope's campus with Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, he invited me into his life. And he, he discipled me. I think it was the first time in my life I was seriously 
discipled. And um, I, I have this memory of, of one thing in particular that was monumental, I guess, for me in that moment in my life. Um, Campus Crusade was famous back in that day for having all kinds of little tools and, and you know, things like the four laws and things like that. And uh, there, there was these discipleship books that we went through. And in one of them was these pictures of two circles. And I just want to walk you through them real quick, just as a way of ending. Um, he, he was trying to help me understand that there, there's, there's two kinds of lives. There's the, the self-directed life. And the self-directed life is where Jesus is on the outside and um, we are in control. Like that, think of that chair as the captain's chair or the pilot's seat or the throne that a king would sit on. The self-directed life is where the self is on the throne. Christ is on the outside of the life. And all my interests and pursuits are directed by me and me alone. I'm the decider of what's right and wrong for my life, what's good and bad for my life, what I'm going to do, often resulting in discord and frustration. In contrast to that, he was telling me about the Christ-centered life, which is the next slide. In the Christ-centered life is where Christ is in your life and on the throne. He's in your life and in the captain's chair. He, in self is yielding to Christ. He's Lord. It's a picture of him being Lord, not just Savior, but Lord. And interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony in God's plan. And then he said, like, then to go to the next slide, he said, which one are you? You know, you're one of these two things. And I realized in that moment um, that, that I, th- I had invited Christ into my life, you know, back in high school. And then I invited Christ into my life a whole bunch of times after that, every time I sinned and needed to redo it again. Um, I realized that uh, while I think Christ was in my life, I was still on the captain's chair. You know, I still had the con in my life. And, and, and Grant helped me, you know, um, walked me through just a prayer and then walked with me in a relationship of surrendering my life daily to Christ and letting him be in the captain's chair, letting the king sit on the throne. I mean, can you imagine, like, uh, like, like if you, let's, you invite Jesus into your life, like into your home, and, and there's like a, a, like there's the throne, like there's the captain's chair, but you always sit there and you have Jesus like sit on the stool. Can you imagine what that would be like? Like the, the king only sits in one spot. The king only wants to sit in one spot. I'm not even sure sometimes like, you know, can Jesus be your savior and not your Lord? I think that's the, I think that's the realm a lot of us Christians sometimes exist in where like, yeah, he's my savior, but I'm, I'm still like, kind of making the decisions. I'm still orienting my life around me in, in my lordship. I don't think that, that's quite possible. If he's your savior, he's your lord. They're not two different people. There's not a savior and a lord. They're both Jesus. And if he's in your life, he gets the chair. If he's in your life, he wants to be king. He wants to be lord. So which one is you? And I'm going to have Dwight just do his piano thing. Do your piano thing. And what I'm going to do to lead us into a time of, of, of conclusion this morning is similar to what we did, how we ended 2019, we're going to begin 2020. Just like we did at the end of our gathering on the 22nd when we were talking about King Jesus coming as a baby, I'm going to read some passages that describe 
Jesus the King. And I invite you to reflect this morning as you listen to these words that different authors, you know, use to describe Jesus. Like, why wouldn't you let Jesus sit in that chair? Isn't he the most qualified? When you listen to these verses, isn't he the most qualified? He's the only one qualified to be our Lord. He's the one who made you. He's the one who knows everything about you. He's the one who loves you completely. He's the one who's able to see in ways you aren't. He's the one that knows what's best for you. Just listen to these words about Jesus. And then when we sing, maybe it can be for us today the beginning of a new year acknowledging him as Lord and as King. So John says this about Jesus, the King. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Paul, when he's writing a letter to the church, to the Colossian church, this is what he says about King Jesus. says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now listen to this. So that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then the writer of Hebrews, he begins his book this way. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And those are just some descriptions of Jesus. But as you listen to those, as you, as you ponder those statements, those truths, those declarations, who else is better qualified to be Lord of your life than him? Who else is more qualified to sit on the throne of your life. Who else? Who is there? There's no one like him.
So is he? Is today the day when, when you need to get back off the chair and give him his proper place in your life? And in doing so, embody the kingdom of God and begin to live a life that brings the kingdom of God because it's all about his will, his kingdom. Just stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and we're going to acknowledge him this morning as king. Father, Jesus, Spirit, we declare this morning, forgetting what is behind, just right now, in this moment, we acknowledge you as Savior, as Lord, as King. And we scoot off the chair And we ask that that you would take the only place made for you, the throne of our lives. And we invite you to be king in a way we've never experienced before, maybe up to this point. As we begin a new year as individuals and as a church, um, we want to be a church that centers around King Jesus. Because if not that, what else are we doing? You are the head of this church and you are the Lord of our lives. And there's no way we can bring the kingdom to our families, our community, and our world unless we let you be king. And that starts with each one of us. So Lord, be king of every area of our life, of our relationships, of our resources, of of all that we are and all that we have. You are king and you are Lord. And we acknowledge you as so. In Jesus' name, amen.